this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think the biggest thing is fear, but the reality is you don't need to do as much to be able to generate a reasonable income. My recommendations to people who are interested in doing this is find a part of your specialty that your specialty reimburses very poorly, you have very poor outcomes on, and make that your specialty. I was talking with a GI doctor who irritable bowel syndrome, they get horrible results on, they get paid poorly on, and nobody wants to see him in the GI world. He's going to make that his specialty, and he's going to find all the little tricks and helping those folks because if it pays poorly through the insurance system, nobody's going to want to do it. And that's something that the patients really value and they will pay for it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. I'll be your host today. My name is Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT, and we've got a really exciting topic. We're going to be talking about a third-party free practice today, or your concierge practice, direct patient care, cash base, whatever name you want to call it. We've got Dr. Jared J. Giannoli. He graduated from Tulane University with a degree in engineering and subsequently matriculated from Tulane University's medical school in 1986. He did an internship in general surgery and an internship in pediatrics. Following a residency in otolaryngology, he completed a fellowship in otology, neurotology, and skull-based surgery at the Michigan Ear Institute. He still maintains a clinical associate professor appointment at Tulane in both the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, and the Department of Pediatrics. And he's published and lectured extensively in the field of neurotology and serves on multiple editorial review boards for the fields of neurotology, and otolaryngology. He also has a new book out, Third Mobile Window Syndrome of the Inner Ear, Superior Semicircular Canal Dehiscence and Associated Disorders. But he's here today to talk to us about the third-party free practice. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, outside of your bio, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, where are you from and kind of how did you find yourself, you know, in the practice you're in today? Sure. I'm originally from New Orleans, and I did most of my training in New Orleans at Tulane. And the only extensive time I was away when I went to Michigan Ear, and there was kind of a tentative agreement that I'd come back and be faculty at Tulane, which I did for a while. And I really enjoyed my time at Tulane. I left in year 2000 after about, I guess, seven years there. And probably the biggest thing I missed the most was teaching. I loved working with the residents. I didn't enjoy all the political stuff at the university. One of the big things I found going into private practice was the year before I went, I wanted to get blinds, blackout shades for the exam rooms in my office at Tulane. And it took two years to get blackout shades. I go into private practice. A lot of committee meetings to approve that. Yeah, it it (laughs) happens. When I say it happens, it happens. It's incredible. It's amazing when you don't have to go through committees and bureaucracy that you can change things on a dime. But in any event, after my fellowship, I knew very little about vestibular disorders. But at the time, this is back in 95, Jack Cartouche was the president of the ANS, who was my mentor, and he plops me on the vestibular disorders committee. And I show up in this committee meeting and I see these guys around the table, all the guys that I'd like, oh my God, these guys know 
they're the world's experts on vestibular disorders. And they're talking about this course they want to run on how to do vestibular testing. And they said, well, we haven't picked someone to run it. Okay. All right. You new guy, you run it. And that was my introduction to vestibular disorders. So for five years, I taught the course on how to do vestibular testing, which really got me involved. And then once I was back at Tulane, I used to get all these referrals from this general ENT doctor, or at least I thought he was a general ENT doctor in Baton Rouge. And the patients would arrive with some kind of vestibular disorder and they needed surgery. And they almost came with a dotted line on their head saying, cut here. I mean, they were just worked up. I said, I got to meet this guy. And so I met him and he's a a guy who did an old fashioned fellowship where you just go and spend time with somebody. He worked with Michael Glasscock and he actually set up Michael Glasscock's vestibular disorders lab. And so we became close allies and friends. And eventually in year 2000, we went and practiced together. And he was my partner up until last year when he passed away, which was a huge loss to me. And I really think he's probably one of the most unheralded physicians in vestibular disorders. The guy was a genius. But the Jack Cartouche thing and him put me into more and more vestibular, which as most people in in medicine know, pays really poorly considering the amount of time you get invested, which was my introduction to third-party free medicine. Yeah. So that kind of sets the stage to kind of help us transition our talk to third-party free. So I guess kind of just give a little bit of background. So when we say third-party free, we're basically talking about just eliminating insurance completely, right? It's just you and the patient and there's no other contract, there's no third party that's paying or participating in healthcare, right? Absolutely. So there's only two parties. It's me and the patient. That's it. There's no third party involved in our relationship. Now, the patients often will get reimbursed by their insurance, but that's between the patient and their insurance company. It doesn't have any input on my decisions with the patient. What brought us to third party free practice started in about year 2001, when we got two separate letters from Medicare. And the first one was, gee, doctors, it looks like you're doing a lot more ENGs than the average ENT physician. Okay, well, keep in mind, we're not the average ENT physician. I'm a neurotologist. My partner's a general ENT doctor who's slowly morphed his practice into a vestibular clinic. They didn't look at what procedures we weren't doing, like flexible endoscopy, endoscopy, tonsillectomies, whatever. They just looked at what we were doing more than everybody else. And the implication at the time was, we're going to investigate you because we think we're defrauding you, us. That was the first letter. Second letter arrived maybe a few months later, basically announcing they were cutting reimbursement for ENGs. And basically, they were going to cut reimbursement less than what it cost us to provide the service. So at that point, we had two good reasons to get rid of Medicare, and we had a couple options. One, we could just not do ENGs, which for our practice didn't make a whole lot of sense because we're taking care of mostly vestibular patients. Second was to shrink the test or shrink the candy bar if you're getting paid the same price, which is the vast majority of my colleagues did. For us, the other option was just get out of Medicare and charge a reasonable price for it, which is what we did. And so when we got out of Medicare, we did a practice analysis. My partner 
looked at his practice and he realized about a third of his workload, his third of his patient population was Medicare, but only about 10% of his revenue was Medicare. For me, it was even, it was insignificant amount. I think I had maybe 10% Medicare patients and a couple percent revenue. So for me, it was a no brainer, but he looked at it and said, well, I'll be happy to work a third less and get paid 10% less. And so when we got out of Medicare, the next year, we actually brought in more revenue. And it was because some of the Medicare patients continued to come and paid the higher price. And it also, we filled up with patients with other insurances that paid better. So fiscally, it was a no-brainer type move in retrospect, although I know a lot of my colleagues are just terrified of thought of letting go of Medicare. So that was the first move to that. So then between 2002 and 2005, we started looking more at all the individual plans and started cutting off the lowest paying plan until eventually by 2005, the only plan we had left was the big one, which is Blue Cross. And at that time, Blue Cross was about 40% of our revenue, but it was 60% of our patients. And Hurricane Katrina hit at that time. And Governor Blanco, who was the governor of Louisiana at the time, instituted this emergency insurance plan, which basically said, well, if a patient has not paid their insurance premium, the insurance company cannot withhold insurance benefits from them. But gee, they don't have to pay the doctors either. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Until six months later, it'll be like half the amount. And it's like, you know what? If we're going to get rid of it, now's the time to do so we got rid of it, and what we found is our revenue slowly dropped over the next two years, and it was basically as the referring physicians realized we weren't accepting any insurance, they would refer the patient in, the patient would come back complain, hey, they're not on my insurance plan, and get mad at them. So they basically mm-hmm. started stopping referrals. Yeah. And then you know we thought, well, you know what, let's just go straight to the patient, and we started doing some advertising, and then our patient volume just took off and it climbed significantly after that to within a couple of years. We're way ahead of where we were just a few years before. And that was, again, 2005. So we're 18 years into a a third-party free practice. And there's no way I'd ever go back to accepting insurance. There's, There's so many benefits and too many negatives to taking insurance. Yeah. During those couple of years, when thing when your revenues were going down before it hit it turned up were you guys like um you know like gonna get better so you know like how did you make it through those couple of years absolutely it does take a certain amount of confidence in yourself well there was two things one is both myself and my my partner Jim Swallow we're both very conservative fiscally so we had zero debt in the practice there was nothing we were paying loans on. Also, from a personal standpoint, I'm very conservative financially. It stems partly how I, I grew up, but, but also I have a disabled son who has autism. And when he was diagnosed, they gave me such grim prognosis that I'm thinking, you know, I need to save up to be able to support this kid the rest of his life. A lot of times when the, everybody's buying their second home and, and boats, and I'm saving up that money. So I basically had enough money stashed away that I could spend two years with no income and it wouldn't change our lifestyle. The reality was as the revenue went down, our overhead also went down. We never, we didn't need anybody else to, to send out bills. So that's a couple of employees we could let go or shift to other places. 
And so consequently, during those two years with revenue decline, although it was a little concerning, I think there's only two two times I went without a paycheck. And when it turned around, it's like, oh my goodness. Then yeah. you get all this. <laughs> it's like, wow, this was really a good move. My wife, of course, is a little anxious about all this. My wife's a gynecologist and she was in all the different insurance plans. And after we've turned this around, I kept telling, you know, you really need to do this. I mean, I know what your practice is like. And she kept saying, oh, I can't do it because you're so specialized. You can do it. I can't do it. I'm not specialized. I said, honey, you will have an easier time than me because basically after her last child, she gave up surgery. So she was running strictly an office-based practice. So there was nothing expensive that she was doing. And she had a more seamless transition to a third-party practice than I did. I mean, I think the following year, her revenue was identical but she was seeing a lot less patients. So, and then as her patient volume has increased, her revenues increased too. And I'm sure it is nice for her to kind of be able to watch you go through it and take some notes and be able to kind of have the pathway like, okay, I could do that. <laughs> it's funny, but she was skeptical about the whole thing until one year she actually attended a lecture I gave on this. And she's sitting in the back room, she's like, Oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. <laughs> it's like, what do you think I've been telling you all these years? And, and, and she's like, well, it just didn't click until then. When, you know, when she heard the whole thing, you know, it's like, wow, right. that makes sense. Yeah. And now she's funny. like the biggest proponent. And I've invited yeah. her to, you know, look, I'm giving a lecture. You want to come down? No, no, no. That's your thing. I don't, I don't yeah. do lectures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Looking at kind of more specifics. So, like, you talked about how your overhead went down a lot. So, in a private practice, there's a significant portion of your practice that is dedicated to the insurance piece of it. So can you just kind of like outline kind of what that looks like as far as what was needed before that you were able to just completely cut out because you weren't having to deal with the, you know, everything from the sure. way you do your notes and the, so having to have certain language there and having to code it a certain way and all the rules. Right. So a couple things. One is we do not send out any bills. We have zero accounts receivable. Payment is at the time of service. Payment for surgery is in advance. As a matter of fact, there, I'll never forget a uh, saying that, uh, from a plastic surgeon. I remember he, he said, patients who pay in advance are always happier with their surgery. And I'll never forget there was this one um, part owner of a surgery center, and we had a pain doctor who put in a $30,000 stimulator without collecting up front. Wouldn't you know it? The patient was not happy with the stimulator. It was this problem and that problem. And sure enough, we had to write off the thing. So number one, we send out no bills. Before a patient comes, when they call, before they even schedule, we tell them how much it will cost. And if we don't know exactly, we give them a range with the highest amount that it would be. So they know in advance what it's going to cost. So there's no surprise. And there's surprise, no bills, no surprise bills. Then when they arrive after they're finished, they pay us either check, credit card, cash, what have you, and we give them a HICFA form, which lists all the codes, et cetera. And then they submit to their own insurance company. The insurance company then will reimburse the patient however amount that you know their insurance is set up. So my fees are the same for everybody, but how much each of them get reimbursed varies dramatically. Anywhere from, I've had... A handful, they get full reimbursement, and I've got some, they get zero reimbursement. 
And the zero reimbursement ones are ones that typically don't have out-of-network benefits. Back in the early days, the ones that had no out-of-network benefits, we could often get them included because they didn't have a neurotologist on their panel, but not so much anymore. One of the benefits is I don't have to comply with meaningful use. So, you know, I have a sort of electronic medical record, but it's one that no one in your listening group has ever heard of. It's ancient. The company that made it is out of business, but we use it because it's functional for us. And basically it's, I write hand notes and they get scanned in the computer and they're pigeonholed in certain cubbies to where I can look, okay, this is the section for notes, this is section for phone calls, this is a section for labs, et cetera. And it's very functional for us. I don't need to comply with all the criteria that Medicare puts up for office visits. I don't have to check for epitrochlear nodes on people to get to a level four. It's just whatever I deem it to be, that's what it is. And you don't have a billing person or a billing company to... No bills, no billing company. Follow up on your collections and do your denials and appeals and all that. Right. Now, my patients will get denials and they'll occasionally reach out to us. And I've got some pre-printed letters about different things. Like one of the interesting things is posturography was routinely reimbursed up until, I guess, the late 2000s. And then, then after 30 years, the insurance company said, oh, that's experimental. We don't need to pay for that. And they started denying it. Now, Medicare, as I understand, still reimburses, but it reimburses, I don't know, 50 bucks or something ridiculously low. But I have, we have standard letters for this, you know, not that it makes a whole lot of difference to the insurance companies, but a lot of times with that, if they just reappeal a second time, they get something, has been my experience. And in your office, you, I assume, like you mentioned, you have all the vestibular testing, but you probably have audiology as well, correct? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we have the most extensive audio vestibular testing lab anywhere. And part of the reason for that is because of our third-party free practice. Because, you know, there are certain things that we have that you can't get in other practices because you can't charge for them. For example, I have a Marchbank's tympanic membrane displacement analysis device, which is a very valuable device. It tells you intracranial pressure by non-invasive means, which would be a, a phenomenal thing to have in a practice. And every time I tell this to my colleagues, they're like, oh my goodness, I want to get one of those. Until they realize it's $30,000 and you will get zero reimbursement for any of it. So it's just a matter of throwing away $30,000. Now, I don't charge patients for it because it's not FDA approved. But what I can do is I can raise the price of other things to accommodate for the cost of that device. And Similar with other things like posturography, et cetera. But one of the reasons we're able to offer the extensive testing is simply because we don't take insurance. And it's interesting, but I know in a lot of the situations where it's a hospital-based practice, there's significant pressure to avoid vestibular testing because it pays so poorly. I saw a patient recently who is about 35-year-old gentleman, status post head injury with bilateral temporal bone fractures, who on one side, he is deaf. He has a complete facial paralysis. And on top of that, he has got episodic vertigo and drop attacks. He's been to a 
really good major medical center to a really good neurotologist who I know who's he's a very excellent neurotologist, has not done a vestibular workup on this guy, even though the patient, he just came to see me. He told me, I don't, I mean, I care about my face. I care about my hearing. But what's keeping me from being functional is the fact that I can't keep my balance. I keep falling down. And the only way you're going to solve that is to do, and he's three years out from his injury. The only way you can solve that, you need to figure out what's going on. Is it because of the ear that's lost hearing? Is it the other ear? Does he need a labyrinthectomy? What does he need? And it is a major medical center that everybody knows that and it just hasn't been done. And I, I suspect strongly it's because of financial reasons. There's pressure for the physician not to do that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's expensive testing that doesn't get reimbursed well. Right. Backing up a little bit to when you guys were transitioning and kind of phasing out your insurance contracts, what was the feedback? Like, what did patients say? What did your referring doctors say? What did your colleagues say? Like, was there a backlash? Take me through that. <laughs> well, different things from different groups. Yeah. So obviously there are some patients that are like, oh my God, I can't afford to come see you and that kind of thing. And the interesting thing, if they were already established patients, it really wasn't very expensive to continue to see us. I mean, to see me once a year and get a hearing test. Actually, it's funny. I had a few of them that said, oh, I'm going to change my insurance to be able to get out-of-network benefits. And I'm, I'm sit down there with them and they're like, okay, so you're going to pay $2,000 more a year for them to cover a visit with me that's going to cost $300? Does that make a whole lot of sense? Or for that matter, even if I need to do surgery on you, add up three years of $2,000 at $6,000, that's enough to pay for your surgery. Anyway, so and I had a few of them there like, and you see the light bulb go off like, oh yeah, no, I can afford you. Then there were some that they just left and once they realized what we offering them is worth the value of their money, they came back. I've had some come to see me strictly because they can come to see me in three or four weeks, but to go see one of my competitors, it's six months and they're not going to see my competitor. They're going to see the nurse practitioner. It might be a year before they get to see my fellow neurotologist. So the, that's the patients. And then most of the patients understood, especially when we explained to them what the costs were and everything. They're like, gee, why were you ever taking insurance? I mean, the patients understand better than the doctors do. The referring doctors, most of them would say, oh, you know, I'd love to refer to you, Jerry. You're, you know, you're my go-to guy, but my patients can't afford you. And they wouldn't stop referring unless it was a relative or a family member, best friend, the bank president, that kind of stuff, they would still send those over. But like, because they just knew they would get good care with you, like they kind of trusted you to take care of them. Right. Yeah. And so the other scenario would be the patient would have problems and come to him and said, you know, I'm still having problems. I heard about this guy, Giannoli, do you think? And they'd be like, oh yeah, go see him. You know, it's like, they wouldn't necessarily bring my name up, but if they brought up, they were like, oh, yeah, that's good, because then they can't be blamed for sending me to someone who's not on my insurance plan. So that's kind of the the feedback I got from that. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I think when I like my first thought when I think about third party free is kind of like that concierge primary care practice where it's almost like membership and you have people coming in on a regular basis for whatever. And you're kind of available and at the will of the patient at all times. And you know, it's kind of, I don't know, that's the model I think of. But translating that to like a specialty, you know, like like a neurotology practice, I mean, 
it sounds like your practice runs more just like a normal practice. <laughs> it's not necessarily that patients have to have a membership or that they expect that they're going to be able to talk to you at 2 a.m. or, you know, anything weird like that. Well, I have to admit, I do give out my cell phone number freely to patients. I very seldom get calls, although I'll occasionally get a frantic text. Dr. Gianoli, I need this, that, the other thing. And my first response is, okay, who is this? <laughs> but, you know, because I don't have their numbers. They have my number. But the biggest difference between my practice and a regular neurotology practice, well, there's a couple of big differences. One is it's like 90% vestibular. That's probably one of the big things is most of my colleagues are not interested in taking vestibular. Even though we are the vestibular experts, most don't want to take care of vestibular patients, partly because they take up so much time and they get paid so poorly. But the second big thing is I have a lot of time with my patients. For example, a new patient visit is scheduled for an hour and sometimes it goes longer than an hour. Follow-up visits are a half hour. I don't have any shorter visits than that. Well, I take it back. I do telemedicine and I'll do med check visits for 15 minutes. Those are the only ones, you know, where I go over their labs and, and make sure they're not getting side effects and that sort of thing. But in office visits, the shortest is a half hour. So when I was at Tulane, I was seeing 30 patients in, in a half day clinic. Now, 15 patients in a day is probably a, a busy day for me. And I only work four days a week. Now you're just bragging. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, it's interesting. When I first left Tulane, I had to kind of reestablish my practice. He said, okay, I'm going to take off on Mondays. You take off on Fridays. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about taking off? Uh, what, what is that all about? He's like, trust me, you need to do this. And so I did it for the first few months because I didn't, I didn't have any patience. And then as things started getting busier, I started booking surgeries on my day off. And then I realized when I did surgery on my day off, it's like, oh my goodness, I got to wait a whole nother week to get a day off. <laughs> and I got addicted to that day off. And what I realized was when I was working at Tulane, I was leaving in the morning before everybody was awake. I was getting home after everybody's asleep. I was on call every third weekend. And I was burning out and not realizing it. And working four days a week, I can do that until I'm 100. Medicine is fun. I'll do it as long as I'm able to do it because I, I enjoy what I do. I know one of the people asked what's one of the major benefits of a third-party free practice. And by far and away, the big one is burnout. There's, I look at all the factors that lead to burnout in physicians, and none of those apply to my practice or my wife's practice. I, my wife did uh, one of these CMEs for her medical malpractice provider, and it was talking about burnout. And she looks at me and says, you know, all these things they talk about, none of it applies to us. We'd have to worry about any of these, the billing and, and the EMR documentation stuff and it's set on and on and on. And it's, so that's probably one of the biggest benefits. No burnout, it makes, it's medicine is a whole lot more fun. I get to know my patients more. Spend an hour with somebody, you're going to know a lot more about them than if you got 15 minutes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that, that part's huge because, especially with dizzy patients, because I think they, a lot of it is in the history. So being able to get that history is really important. And if you only have 10 minutes, sometimes it's hard. How does it work for surgery? So are most patients using their insurance benefits to like help cover, you know, the hospital cost or the surgery center cost, or they have some cash pricing for 
patients who maybe don't have insurance? Sure. So the, the surgery center accepts all the insurances. So that's not an issue. It's strictly my fee. Now, I do have a lot of patients that have no insurance. I have a, a good number of patients from Canada and Europe that come to see me, which is interesting. Probably, I, I suspect one of the reasons they come to see me is because I am so much cheaper compared to going somewhere else. Because they're going to have to pay the register price if they go to the big university medical center. And I'm like a fourth of the price they'd pay going there. But we also have, I set up cash prices with the surgery center. I've got cash prices set up with the imaging center down the street. We got ridiculously low cash prices for labs to where I've had patients who their insurance covers their lab. And they're like, oh my God, if I pay cash, it's less than if I use my insurance, you know, which is sounds bizarre, but it's very true. I've actually seen that with imaging as well. You know, okay, so the price for a CAT scan is $2,000, but gee, your insurance company is going to give you a discount. It's only $1,000, but if you pay the cash price, it's 500 Wow. It doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's something we've been dealing with it, like I said, for over 18 years. And there's a lot of misinformation out in the public. As you know, whenever you hear about these crazy prices, patients being charged a gazillion dollars for whatever, it's the register price. It's not what the physician's actually going to get paid. Oh, I have a personal story. My daughter had a sleep study done and I get the bill from the hospital. It was done at the hospital and I get the bill from the hospital. It is for $16,000. And I'm, I'm like, whoa, 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 what? And now I know I've sent patients for sleep studies. I've had cash prices as low as $250 for a sleep study. So first of all, I found they double billed me. It was only supposed to be 8000 Okay, great. All right. I know it doesn't cost that. And I know your cash price, that's not your cash price. And I sent a nasty little letter to the billing department and the CEO of the hospital saying, I'm a physician and I, I can get these for 250 And the only reason we used you because her sleep doctor wanted it done there. And you guys are seriously price gouging here. And I got the price down to 2000 nice. and, <laughs> and I paid it, you know, even though it, yeah. was, five, it was 10 times what, I, you wow, know, I know we incredible. could have gotten elsewhere. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, that, there's so many things that are unique to medicine that other businesses don't deal with, you know, because typically if you are running a small business, there's more transparency of prices. Prices are generally the same for every customer that's that's doing that. Whereas in medicine, you know, everyone's different. You get a different cost and there's no transparency. Nobody knows that the person next to them in the waiting room has a higher copay or lower copay. It's all just this big, complicated mishmash. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I think what we do is much fairer. It's the same price for everybody. It's also, I think it's an easy bet that if we had food insurance, the price of a gallon of milk would be about five times what it is now. And you'd have to go through all kinds of gyrations for that. It is what it is. But if you charge the same price, the patient can decide ahead of time whether they want to do it or not, or they want to go elsewhere. You, you know, it's interesting. I wrote an editorial for the Wall Street Journal about this about, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And a friend of mine who was a former CFO of a corporation. Now, you would think former CFO of a corporation would know something about capitalism and how money works. He reads it and he says to me, well, Jerry, what keeps you from charging price gouging and charging outrageous prices? 
And I'm thinking to myself, what a dumb question. I'm sorry, but you know, it's like, well, the patients, they will say no and go somewhere else because I'm competing with free. You know, they, they can go elsewhere and basically their insurance is going to cover it versus they got to pay me. So if I charge too much, I'm out of business. Speaking of, so how did you know how much to charge? How did you set your pricing with the hope that, okay, is this going to be an acceptable amount for patients? Sure. So when we first did this, there was nobody else. Doing, well, for that matter, I only know of one otoneurologist that is on a cash basis, but no other neurootologist. But even when we did this back in 2005, there were some primary care doctors that had done it, but no specialty surgeon that I'm aware of outside of plastic surgery. It was trial and error for the most part. First of all, for office visits, I thought we were being underpriced for what we provided to the patients. So I, I went, we went up on our office charges. For surgeries, I thought we were overcharging. You know, if we looked at the register price, uh, let's say, you know, mastoidectomy, the register price was 5000 or something like that, you would never get paid $5,000. Insurance would typically give you about 1000 uh, or 1500 somewhere around there. So we cut that price in half, then I charged 2500 And so we kind of did trial and error. And so for the most part, when it comes to surgery, if it's something that I feel I offer significant expertise and quality for, I'll charge more. If it's something I don't want to do, I charge a lot more. <laughs> if, if it's something I want to do, I'll charge less. You know, and so for the most part, I've changed prices over the last 18 years, kind of reflecting that. So the things where I, I you know, like harder, things are more challenging. Like I do a lot of superior canal dehiscence surgery. And, and that's a lot of the times that's what the patients are coming to see me for. So I have a, a little bit of a premium on that. And if it's a revision, sir, let's say they've had surgery elsewhere and it's, they're coming for revision surgery. I have a premium on top of that because they're higher risk. They're gonna, it's going to take longer to do. And that's kind of how we've set the pricing. I have to admit, I lowered my initial office consultation price just to get people in the door. I think it's a, a hell of a bargain. I, I spend an hour with a patient. They get an audiogram beforehand. And I want to say it's $350 for a full hour, which when you consider my colleagues are spending 10 minutes and charging that, and, and they get to do that six times in an hour. The reason I do that is because so many patients are turned off by the, oh my God, I got to pay cash. And then once they, and they think, oh, it's going to be like all the other doctors. And once they get in and they get an hour with me, they're like, oh my goodness, this is so different and this is worth it. And then they're willing to pay for it because they think, oh, it's going to be the same old thing. I'm going to get five minutes with the doctor and they're going to charge me a gazillion dollars and it's going to be this no, no different result. And I spent a lot of time, not just going through history and all, I spent a lot of time educating patients, which... We don't get paid as physicians to counsel patients. I mean, we get paid by the CPT code. We don't get paid for time educating and counseling, which used to be a huge part of what physicians would do. That's been shunted to either the internet or if you've got somebody else on the payroll that you're paying to do that who is not as qualified as you and can't be as specific to that individual for their specific needs. So, I think that personal touch and that personal connection makes a big difference. Yeah. 
for your surgeries, do you bundle your pricing so that like the post-op visit, like, you know, let's say it's $2,000. So does that $2,000 include post-op for X number of post-op visits or, you know what I mean? Does anything include yeah. with that or just surgery? It sure does. I generally kind of think of a like a 90-day global as part of the post-op part of the surgery. Sometimes I extend that if the patient needs something or I feel like, it, you know, it's still part of the post-op stuff. I just include it in there. Once they're kind of healed up from it, then that period ends. In any event, it's all kind of considered together. So like with complications, you know, if you had, you know, a wound dehiscence or something, that would be in within that night. Yeah. So one of the things I do for my patients, especially those that don't have insurance, is Included in the cost of surgery is an insurance policy. And the insurance policy lasts for four months. And it's if they've got, you know, let's say they wake up, I do them as an outpatient surgery, and they wake up and they're nauseated and vomiting, they got to be admitted overnight to the hospital, it'll cover the cost of the hospital stay. Let's say, you know, we do surgery and it fails and we got to do a revision. It covers the cost of the revision. It covers the cost of their travel, hotel, the surgery stay. Of course, my fee is waived. You know, I don't charge him if I got to do a revision on my own case. So that's the one thing we introduced. It was something, it's real popular with plastic surgeons, but other third-party free surgeons have used that as well. When I think it's it's a great benefit, it gives them a little bit of peace of mind. Oh my goodness, what happens if I have a complicated, then it's a whole lot more expensive. No, 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 don't, you don't have to worry about that. And I have to admit, I, I often forget to tell patients about that. I had one recently patient who two weeks after surgery got COVID, wound up getting a big time ear infection, took forever to get the infection cleared. And I said, well, we got to go in and do revision surgery. And they're, oh my goodness, well, how much is that going to cost? Well, it's free. Like, what do you mean it's free? Well, I bought you this insurance policy. You did? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even your hotel stay and your your airfare is going to be covered. Wow. It's like, oh my goodness, that's great. Yeah, that's a good point because that's something I hadn't thought about. We talked about a lot of the benefits of the cash-only practice. Is there anything you can think of that would be drawbacks or disadvantages? Like, is there ever a time when you're like, well, you know, that's something that we just can't do because of this model? So, yeah, there's two things. One is there are some things that patients have very low priority on and they are not going to spend money on it. And the classic one is a chronic ear. Most of those patients could care less that they've got a clastitoma growing and it's, it, yeah, I just, you know, I need to clean up that stuff that drains periodically. I don't care about it. And they're not going to spend money. They'll use their insurance. So I don't do, that part of my practice has withered significantly just because of that. The other thing is there are some things that I can't really justify doing for patients because it's significantly cheaper for them and just as good quality down the street. And probably the, the big one that comes to mind is cochlear implants. I've done a bunch of cochlear implants, but once we went to a third-party free model, it got to be, I, I still did some, but it's like I, I couldn't justify it because they can get just as good of a result down the road. And so now, I mean, I think I stopped doing it about five years ago. And when I get patient needs a cochlear implant, I'll say, okay, you know, you really, you need a cochlear implant. Here's some places you can go and I'll refer them out. So that's, that's two of the big drawbacks. The, the third one I'd tell you is money. If you want to make a lot of money, the way to go is to get 
take every insurance plan you can and just run an in and out like cattle every five minutes. And you can make more money that way, but I would not be happy practicing like that. And I think it would lead to the burnout we're talking about. You're not going to have the same engagement with the patients. And I kind of started doing some rough numbers, and I think I would have to see three times as many patients as I'm seeing right now to generate the same amount of revenue as I am right now. But I could certainly expand things and go up to six times as many and make and double my income, but I'd be miserable. Yeah. Money doesn't buy happiness, right? No, ma'am. Well, let's see here. As we're rounding this out, any final thoughts about having a third-party free practice or anything that we haven't touched on that our listeners need to know? We also I have a canned lecture on this, and I've done it for a bunch of different groups. And inevitably, everybody's all excited. Oh, my goodness, I, I need to consider this. I need to do this, that sort of thing. And I think and both, most of them never do it. Most of them never do it. But And I think the biggest thing is fear. And that's what was the fear my wife had and why she didn't want to do it. Because her thought was, if I start asking him to pay me, no one's going to come see me. And she was obviously very wrong. I tell her she's the gynecologist to the stars here in Covington, Louisiana. She's got Now, okay, so my wife's a unique one. She, she doesn't listen to anything I tell her. So she's got a waiting list for a new patient to see her in one year. And I said, honey, that is, I'm sorry, it's, it's a nice compliment, but it's kind of dumb business practice. What you need to do is raise your price. You know, what happens is inevitably this happens. You know, someone sets up a new patient visit in a year. Well, in a year's time, you know, they find something else to do and they'll just no show. So you want to get it down to about a month. What you ought to do is just slowly raise your prices and a lot of these folks will drop off your waiting list. But she is very hesitant to do that. She, she doesn't value her services as much as her patients do. So, you know, so I think the biggest thing is fear and, but the reality is you don't need to do as much to be able to generate a reasonable income. My recommendations to people who are interested in doing this is find a part of your specialty, because I I talk to other specialties about this, that your specialty reimburses very poorly, you have very poor outcomes on, and make that your specialty. I was talking with a GI doctor who irritable bowel syndrome, they get horrible results on, they get paid poorly on, and nobody wants to see him in the GI world. He's going to make that his specialty. And he's going to find all the little tricks and helping those folks. And I haven't talked to him since, but I'm sure that was a successful move because if it pays poorly through the insurance system, nobody's going to want to do it. And that's something that the patients really value and they will pay for it. And to kind of springboard off of that, do you have any thoughts on, let's say someone's like, well, maybe I'll do dizzy patients with a cash model one day a week or at this satellite or kind of like trying to do like a parallel thing where it's like, I want to keep my insurance, my regular practice going over here, but I'm going to kind of dip my toe into this cash practice with this certain patient population. What are your thoughts on that? Does that work or do you kind of have to be all in? I think that's a setup for disaster or for failure. There was a colleague of mine who did exactly that. And against my advice, he had he set up a cash-based practice satellite from his insurance-based practice. And it worked for a little while until the patients realized, wait a minute, 
we can go over to the other practice and it's covered by insurance. Why should we go to this cash? And so consequently, he had to fold it up after a couple of years. So it's not a way. Now, now that said, there's a lot of practices that are adding on cash-based services. So they're kind of not really third-party free, but they're they're doing things that aren't reimbursed through insurance. Now, there's a limit of what can be done for that sort of stuff. I I don't honestly don't know what sort of services in general ENT that would be. I know there's a lot of cosmetic things that a lot of folks are doing that obviously aren't covered by insurance, and that would fit into an ENT practice where you could have that sort of blend of some cash and 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 some insurance based. And it seems like with the declining reimbursement by the insurance companies, that's become more and more popular to add on these cash-based services. Yeah, to have some sort of like consistent revenue that you can control the price of and everything. So, okay, great. And for the listener who is thinking, hmm, like maybe we should consider that, is there, do you have any recommendations on kind of like that transition into a third-party practice? You know, you guys kind of weaned yourself off of insurance versus like the cold turkey. Okay, this year we're not going to renew any of our contracts. Absolutely. So there's a book that just came out called The Private Practice Solution by Dr. Grace Torres Hodges. And I just reviewed the book for her and I thought it was a great starting place. She goes through how do we get to where we are? She goes through how do you analyze your practice and how do you implement going to a third-party free practice? And you know, it's it's sort of like the article I wrote, except greatly expanded. And I thought she did a fabulous job. Probably the only negative I would say about the book is she didn't talk about some of the pitfalls, like you mentioned about, oh, I'm going to start a satellite that's third party and continue to accept insurance elsewhere. But I thought it was a fabulous book and it just hit up for sale, like as of a couple of weeks ago, and you can find it on Amazon, the private practice solution. Cool. I'll we'll have to add that to the list and to the show notes. One other thing, you mentioned kind of valuing our services and not wanting to increase her charges. As I think about that, I think, you know, even personally, I think of like, oh, if I tell patients it's going to be $300 to see me, they're going to think I'm greedy or that, I don't know, like my instinct is kind of like this fear of like, oh, she thinks she is really valuable. But I think it's it's also important that we value our time. How do you think about that? Sure. The bottom line is, physicians have that thought process going through the head. The patients don't. The patients understand. They know if they go get their hair done, they're going to pay $300 to get it colored and highlighted, and and that's something accepted. For that matter, a lot of people, they go to their dentist. They don't have any dental insurance, and they pay for that every year, and it's because it's a service they value. If the patient balks at paying you for your services, you got to wonder how much they actually value your services, in which case maybe they're better off not seeing you. It's interesting, but I had overheard a conversation one of my receptionists was having with a potential new patient that I called. And we have kind of like pre-printed scripts for them to explain to the patient what our practice is like and you pay in advance and Dr. Giannoli's initial visit, I think at the time it was $300. And the patient's response was, well, my dizziness is not worth $300. I'm not coming. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if your dizziness is not worth $300, you shouldn't go see anybody. It's just not that bad. 
I mean, the reality is if you talk about dizziness or vertigo, I mean, there's such a huge spectrum from real minimal to really life altering. And if you just took all comers and it was all free, you have a lot of people there with minimal problems, which reminds me of an interesting story I had about a patient who came to see me. And I don't even remember what the problem was, but after the end of the visit, I said, okay, you've got to do X, Y, Z. This is what you need to do to, to help yourself. He says, thank you, doc. And he leaves. About a month later, he comes back and he's got the same problem. It's no better. Oh, no, it's no better. I said, okay, well, geez, did you do X, Y, Z? And he says, oh, no, I didn't do that. I'm thinking, well, well, sir, you've got to do X, Y, Z if you want this to get better. And he's like, okay, all right. He goes away. About a month later, he shows up and guess what? He's still got the same problem. And I'm like, sir, did you do X, Y, Z? Oh, no, I didn't do that. So I'm scratching my head here. I'm thinking, okay, well, so why do you come back to see me? Because you know what I'm going to say. And his response was, well, it's only a $5 copay, and I was hoping you might say something different. At that point, I said, no, <laughs> see, see you later. I'm not going to say anything different. Don't come back. <laughs> Now, that's somebody that would never show up at a third-party free practice because they're not going to spend their money for nonsense like that. And that's, unfortunately, that's, we have a lot of those kind of patients in our our medical system because it costs almost nothing to see the doctor. They're going to come to you because their nose itches a little bit or, or, you know, or or silly things like that, that there's no way that they'd wind up in my practice. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it's funny, I think, Doctors as professionals compared to other other professionals, so lawyers, for example, I think at least talking to a lot of my peers, I think we just tend to to undervalue our time for some reason. You know, we've spent a ton of money for our training, spent a ton of our time in the prime of our lives, you know, doing residency and and all of this, you know, training to kind of have this unique skill set. And, you know, a lawyer, for example, usually has no problem saying, okay, this is my hourly rate. <laughs> this is what it is. So there's, I think there maybe there's something unique to the medical profession that we just tend to not want to value our skills. <laughs> the other thing that's kind of unique about my practice, I have probably about 5% of my practice is medical legal work. And I have totally separate pricing for medical legal work. It's basically about whatever a normal patient charges, it's double. It's for everything. I get asked, well, why? Well, first of all, a lot of these patients are coming here. They don't necessarily want to get better. They just want to win their lawsuit. Two, they come in in a fair number and we're going to do shenanigans. We have to repeat testing and spend more time with them than a regular patient. Three, you're going to want to talk to me. You're going to want me to do reports and on and on and on. So it's the hassle factor that we have that I charge more. And I don't know this for a fact, but I think for a lot of the hospital-based physicians, those prices they can't charge more for. And I mean, I, I can do that. I had actually I had one patient, a patient, IME comes in. And he was extremely rude, refused to sign consent forms for testing, threw the clipboard across the room in the waiting room because he was mad that he had to sign a consent, and then stormed out and left. Okay, so first of all, everything they paid for me for that day was non-refundable. Two, they wanted to send him back to get tested. I was like, no, but that guy, is, he's, a, he's a live wire, a loose cannon. I don't, I don't want that guy in my office. 
And then they begged and begged and pleaded. And I was like, okay, well, the only way I will take them back is one, you have to pay again, but this time it's double the previous payment. And two, you got to have someone accompanying him to take care of them. So when they came back, they had <laughs> had a nurse oh my gosh. with them. And, and I did it because I, I basically was getting paid, well, three times, essentially, my medical legal fee, which is double my regular fee. So in essence, I was getting paid six times a normal patient to look at this person. But at the same time, too, from the lawyer's standpoint, it's worth it because the little they're paying me is nothing compared to $10 million potential settlement they're looking at. Yeah. You know, so that's peanuts. Yeah, it's all relative. Yeah. So talk to me about some of the trends in physician practice models. So, you know, for example, employment versus private practice. And what does that look like over the years? Sure. So when we first started looking at transitioning to third-party free practice, we were kind of looked at the future and thought with the declining reimbursement, the increasing bureaucracy and, and hassles put on private practices, we thought there were three things we were going to see going forward. Number one was the, the doctors that were older and could afford to retire were going to just retire early. And I think we did see a wave of that early on. The second big one was going to be physicians just hanging up the private practice and becoming employed physicians because then they don't have to worry about all that. They just get a paycheck and it's easy. And then the third movement was going to be what we did, which is going to go to a cash-based model. I don't know what the numbers were when we did this back in, when we dropped Medicare in 2001. I know it was rare enough that I think we were one of only 10 physicians in the state of Louisiana that had opted out of Medicare. People like <laughs> looked at me like I had a third eye in my forehead. The hospital I was working at, there were no employed physicians. It was all private practice physicians. Currently, that same hospital, there is almost no private practice physicians. Everybody's an employee. So it's completely shifted at that particular hospital. I do have some numbers from an article we did in 2015. And in this is from the Physicians Foundation survey. In 2008, there were 38% of doctors were employees, which in 2014, it jumped up to 53%. Private practice in 2008, it was 62%. And then by 2014, it was 35%. And then as far as third-party free practices, it was less than 1% in 2008. And as of 2014, they had a 7.2%. I don't know what the current numbers are, but I don't doubt it's probably shifted more toward employment and less toward private practice. I think private practice as the model accepting insurance is a dying entity. I know of, I think the surgical subspecialists can still make it work because you get enough revenue from the surgery to keep things going. But as far as the medical docs, they're hurting bad. There was a neurologist colleague of mine who was my favorite neurologist to refer to. The last couple of years he's in practice, he almost took no income home. And he eventually went to a cash-based model for the last couple of years and sort of took the same attitude as my wife who who said, well, fine, if nobody comes to see me, I'll just hang it up. And, and it turned out their patients still came to see him, even though they charge cash. But I almost think the employment shift is probably reaching its apex. And it's probably going to start rolling off a little bit. 
just because there's so much dissatisfaction among physicians being employees, the the burnout factor or the I forget the term they use. It's not burnout, but it's moral injury factor, where you know this is the right thing to do for my patient, but you can't do it because of the powers that be, either by insurance or the hospital administration, force you to go elsewhere and do something else. That weighs on the stress factor on physicians' lives. And and so I think you're going to see some trickle back into private practice to some degree. I don't think the employment model's going away. I just think it's kind of plateaued and it's probably going to kind of pull back a little bit. Well, I can't let you go without at least talking a little bit about the book that came out this year or recently. Yes, it came out in February. It sure did. Awesome. Congratulations. So tell me a little bit about it. Tell our listeners about it. So it is third mobile window syndrome of the inner ear, superior semicircular canal dehiscence and associated disorders. I edited this along with Philippa Thompson, who actually was a former patient of mine who is a a writer and publisher who's gotten into her life goal is to publicize superior canal dehiscence and get it known by the public. But I have 60 authors writing 30 chapters and authors from around the world. And I think We've covered just about every aspect of third mobile window syndrome. And one of the the things I pointed out in the the beginning is superior semicircular canal dehiscence is not rare. It is not the most common third mobile window syndrome. It's just the most commonly talked about third mobile window syndrome. And if you look at the actual numbers, uh, cochlear facial dehiscence is actually more common than superior canal dehiscence. And that's not counting all the other dehiscences out there as well. But it's the first book of its kind, and I hope that there's more to follow because it it's something that I think my colleagues don't talk enough about. I know it's available. On, I found it on Amazon, so probably Amazon and major you know book retailers. So, Oh, gosh, it's on the Springer website too. But I think okay, it's the same great. price as if you get it on Amazon. All right. So you guys check it out. And are you on any social media, any tags or (laughs) handles that you want to plug? (laughs) I have accounts with all of them, but I almost never use them. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) If people want to to reach out or learn more, I assume you have a website for your practice and everything. Yeah, we do. It's earandbalance.net. But if they want to just email me directly, it's just ggianoli at gmail.com. Cool. I'm easy to reach. And I've helped a lot of physicians who are interested in transitioning, including several ENT doctors. And as far as I know, they've all been successful. Very good. Awesome. Well, well, thanks so much for taking the time and congratulations on your, your success with this model. And, and thanks for kind of giving us a peek into kind of the inner workings of it. And hopefully I would love to have you come back and talk to us sometime. Absolutely. Be happy to. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross. Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. 
Thanks again for listening and see you next week.